Members of the TalkScript team were on site at JSConf US 2019, where we did a series of interviews with the conference speakers. We had a great time meeting these thought leaders and learning more about each of them and their talks. We've compiled the interviews into a six-part series to help share the essence of JSConf US 2019. This episode contains interviews with Alexandra Sunderland, Sarah Ficadu, and Florian around the theme of back-end services. All right, we're back. I'm Nick Nisi. And I'm Anthony Ciccarello. And I'm Alexandra Sunderland. Welcome. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Uh, so let's start by mentioning your talk and the title of it, and that's Bringing Back Dial-Up. So do you want to summarize uh, what you talked about? Yeah. So what I did is I made an app for my phone that lets you access the internet without actually having a data or Wi-Fi connection, and instead it transfers all of the information over SMS. So you have a real browser within your phone that's transferring entire pages with thousands and thousands of characters over SMS and creating this real kind of like 1990s browser experience. <laughs> Fits in so well with the theme of this conference. <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool. It's an actual browser like with a URL bar and you type in a URL and then that gets sent off as, as yeah. SMS. Yeah, so you start off by entering the, the URL that you want, just like a real browser. That sends an SMS to my server the server then grabs the real data for that page and then condenses it and sends that back to the phone, which renders it in a web view component. So it renders like a real browser within the app. And the way that this works, because it would take 1300 SMS to transfer something so simple as like google.com, and that's not really feasible. So what it does is it has all these methods of compressing the HTML. So it starts off by getting rid of things like the head or the styles or the JavaScript within the page, and then dives into some kind of ridiculous use cases like using a thesaurus API to turn long words into really short versions or replacing all the HTML with Greek characters, which are a part of the SMS character set. And so I'm able to do things like transform uh, Google.ca, which would be 1300 SMS into just three SMS and get the same full experience. Wow. 1300 to three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's quite the compression. It's, it's better than gzip. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So when I watched your talk, it was... So enlightening just to like see how you went through trying to clear out all that information and, and get something that's usable. And I was wondering, what was like the process for you to like go from an idea and then decide to actually go ahead and implement it? Yeah, so the, the first thing that I did is I started building a chat bot where I could send it directions like, how do I get from point A to point B? And then my server would pick up on that, use some different APIs, and then send me answers. So it would do things like find directions for me or find translations for words or ratings for restaurants and all these different things. And I found that I was wasting a lot of time building all these one-off integrations between APIs. And I decided at the end, you know, I should just build a whole browser because at the end of this, I'm going to want to have integrations with every single service out there. And so I, I built this browser and it does everything for me now. <laughs> I just built this browser. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so you mentioned that it's using the Twilio API uh, for receiving your text messages and then sending back more SMS messages with like the response, with what the server is sending. What other uh, technologies are you using? So the phone app itself is Android using Java. I chose that instead of the more popular uh, React Native or Kotlin or anything like that mm -hmm. because 
when I started this project, it was fully intended to just be a project for myself. And I have an Android and I don't care about iPhones. So I decided to uh, go the easy route and make an Android app. And the server I built in Node.js because I thought it'd be really funny to put JavaScript on the server where it isn't supposed to be to create this <laughs> browser that doesn't have JavaScript where it's supposed to be. <laughs> Feel like we're starting some hot drama here. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's that's hilarious. And then alongside that, you you kind of mentioned you created your own compression algorithm, and then I, I was really interested in like some of the different quirky things that you had to do to really try and squeeze everything down as much as possible. The one that really caught my eye was the links. Like you had to think of your own way to convey. The URLs because those can be massive and that could be several SMS messages just for a single link. How did you come up with this idea of uh, three characters to represent that instead? Yeah, so when I'm on my computer, I have proper security behavior where I'll hover over a link and check that it's going somewhere good before I actually click on it. But when I'm on my phone, I find that I just click on it no matter what and I don't really check to see where it's going. So I decided to take advantage of that bad behavior and instead of sending a real link over to the browser, I would send a random character string that would mean nothing. And so whenever I would click on this fake link on my phone, that random string would be sent to the server and the server would know what random character string would match up with a real URL and I could save a lot of space by not sending that full URL. So you set up your own mappings for these long URLs and just kept those long URLs on the server? Yeah, I, I set up a, a Redis data storage where the, the key of the mapping would be the phone number and then underscore and the short mapping and then the value would be the real URL so that when the browser sent over this little string, the server would know to look that up in Redis and then find the real URL and get the data for that instead. So what did you feel like you learned through this whole process of creating your own browser over SMS? I learned a lot about how to build phone apps. I had never never built a phone app before, so part of this was me wanting to figure out how to do that, maybe in a little bit of antiquated technology at this point. but. I learned about a lot about that, a lot about how SMS worked because at first I was getting tons and tons of errors because sending like all the characters that I wanted to send over were invalid or would kind of look like HTML, which would send all these random Twilio errors because it would think it was their own special Twilio markup language and it just would not work for the longest time. So I learned a lot about like how SMS works and how it gets delivered and the whole history behind that. Very cool. So are there any problems that kind of really caused caused issue as you were building this? Bigger things that you had to tackle as you're building your own browser? I think the, the biggest issue which ended up not being an issue was that when I started out for the first couple months, I thought for sure that I would have to build my own browser and my own rendering engine and like the way that you interact with links and like everything that goes into building an actual browser. I was planning out how to do that. And I had no idea until very close to the end of the project where I, I had no idea that a web view component was a thing. And a web view is something where like if you've ever clicked a link in Slack and it opens up Chrome within the app, that's a web view. And this is a component Android provides where you can just send it HTML and it'll render that HTML in Chrome in your app for you. And that was the best discovery I could have found because it saved me a huge hassle. (laughs) So the browser itself then has to take the compressed data and then convert that back into standard HTML and then it passes that to the web view. That's how it works? Yeah. Very cool. 
I was curious, on your server, do you take, do you run the JavaScript on pages? So if you if you have some sort of JavaScript inserted DOM, does that get sent over? No, it doesn't. It, it works for text-based websites only. So Reddit, Wikipedia, anything very, very simple like that. Something would have to have server-side rendering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned SMS is not secure. So you purposefully left out anything that might require a login like it doesn't even translate that yes sms is very susceptible to being intercepted by anyone and it's not encrypted so any message you send over sms can be seen by anyone and i decided having login links would be a bit dangerous because it might make you want to try to log into your email if you don't have access to the internet and so i decided to get rid of all login links and all, all links that would let you provide any information like that which also saves some space in the messages in the mm -hmm. end too Cool. That's so cool that you thought to even like not just like tell people not to do that, but you prevent it because it is just not secure. So you take advantage of that to yeah. take out some some information from the page. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and <laughs> helps your compression. Yeah, that's really cool. cool. This is just such a cool story of like scratching your own itch and really building something that is useful to you. And the way that it like I just can't fathom taking a massive web page and condensing it down to a couple of SMS messages and still not really losing any any of the data of the page. Yeah. It's so cool. I was super surprised too because I when I saw that Google would take 1,300 SMS, I thought a really, really ambitious goal would be getting it down to 10, and I thought that would be impossible. But I can do it in three. Yeah. <laughs> when I was in college, I before I had a smartphone, I would often use... Google had this service that you could basically go to a Google URL, but like basically append another URL to it and it would strip out all of the pa the pieces of the page that it thought were irrelevant and then just give you back that data. So if it was like a news article, it would just give you the content of the news article itself. And I used that to my advantage to build some cool stuff that could like understand, you know, just news articles itself. But this seems like, I mean, that was still huge because it was going to Google first and then that would go get this page and then it would do all of this manipulation of the page to just get the the content, but it was still sending a ton of data back to my phone and using up a lot of data. Yeah, just, I totally did not have the idea. I was just build a browser. That's <laughs> so cool. I, I love these ideas or these, uh, these stories of building something so cool that, and, and then sharing it. Yeah, it reminds me of the Opera Mini browser. Yeah. And just like all those little things that if you don't care about certain parts of the page, you can compress it a lot and save people a lot of, a lot of data mm -hmm. and you did that for yourself and you learned a ton along the way and I love that you shared that and your presentation was really well done and, and I loved your slides and thanks for, for sharing that with us at JSConf. Thanks, I'm glad you liked it. Thank you. And we're back. Uh, I'm Nick Nisi. I'm Neil Roberts. I'm Sarah Picotto. Welcome. So your talk, uh, tell us a little bit about what it was. It was, yeah, Meet the Packets. Yes. <laughs> Meet the packets. Well, initially I thought I would be showing a lot of packet diagrams, so it made a lot of sense. <laughs> and then I realized packet diagrams are boring. There is no way to spice them up. <laughs> so I went more for the uh, generic packet is something that encapsulates data. Hmm. So we can talk about data in all kinds of ways. Basically, audio streaming is both hard and easy depending on what point you are in time. It's pretty easy if you're a client because we've got a lot of really cool APIs that make it easier nowadays. But if you're trying to convert audio or get it 
from point A to point B quickly, it's a little bit more difficult. So if I were to just use like, like as someone who hasn't done, done a deep dive into this, if I were to just use like an audio tag mm -hmm. and put an MP3 on the on there, is it is the browser by default doing any kind of streaming of that? Mm -hmm. it yeah, is. it does a get and it grabs that, but the problem is if you can't download that file, uh -huh. you're kind of stuck with what you have. So if that file's really big and it takes a lot of bandwidth to download, then maybe it doesn't play. It yeah. can surely try to play it, but that's where adaptive bitrate streaming comes in and you having multiple qualities and okay, you have a better shot of getting this or even better, let's say you start out with great internet and then you go into a tunnel. Mm -hmm. Then it can switch that and the browsers that have this media sources extension API built in have the ability to do that change out of different segments of audio. Mm -hmm. And that requires, you're saying there's two different kind of systems. There's like the closed source Apple version and then an open source version. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of those do is split it up into smaller files. Yes. And they have a specification for like how to do it so that you can kind of work all together. I mean, that's really what the protocol is about. I don't, there's nothing in the protocol that like makes it happen. <laughs> except for that it's kind of a contract that, okay, this side will do this thing and this side will do this thing. And we can use normal HTTP servers. In the initial version of my talk, I actually talked about before there were these newer HTTP-based adaptive streaming mm -hmm. protocols. And before it was, you had to have a special media server in order to stream your audio or your video. And then even before that, you had to have a special client to stream your audio. Mm -hmm. And those that client and server had to have this like long negotiation over what type of quality and anything else that the client needed to know. And now the client has a lot more knowledge. I think on my slide I said the client had to get smarter mm -hmm. and it's smarter because it has really awesome audio APIs to work with. So there was kind of like a server only implementation mm -hmm. of audio streaming in the, in the beginning? Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't find a year on it, but it was made by Macromedia. So that should give you kind of a good <laughs> idea, you know, what era we're talking about. And that's still used. People still use, it's called RTMP. And, but then there are a lot of problems with it. <laughs> yeah. Did they use some of the server-side packet stuff that you went over in your presentation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was one of the first that would do adaptive bitrate streaming on the TCP layer. They have a bunch of other options, though. You could do it on over UDP, which does or doesn't have any sort of packet resending. So mm -hmm. if the packet is lost, it's just lost. <laughs> and that worked out for some people. Like if you're on Skype or something, I think it's it's better that you hear what the person says next than what they said five minutes ago oh, yeah. is the thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the problem with RTMP mostly was that you couldn't, it couldn't get across most firewalls, so people mm. couldn't use it. Mm. They had any sort of firewall up, so then you had to tunnel it over HTTP, and that, at least from forums I read, I mean, it was a lot of me digging around in forums and going, <laughs> yeah. oh, these are problems. I really like kind of going back to periods where technology shifted mm -hmm. and being like, well, what is everyone talking about? Like, yeah. you, you learn so many interesting things when that happens. For sure. So the, the, the way that the server stuff would work, right, the idea would be that it, it keeps acknowledging the last packet that it sent. Mm -hmm. And then even if you keep sending packets out, if the client's just acknowledging old packets, you're like, oops, they're, they're losing stuff. I need to, would the idea be that that's the point where you say, like, well, maybe I need to start serving them different audio so that they can... Not exactly. Right. You would request audio... Well, this gets into some details I actually didn't get that far into. Depending on That's the protocol you used, <laughs> it would give you different audio to start, and then it would change and request what you need. But 
as far as the packets themselves, a whole audio file might be broken out into many, many, many different packets. Mm -hmm. And so if your audio file you're sending doesn't make it there, like a packet is lost, mm -hmm. it has to restart the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you got two packets in and something happened on the third packet and there's 18, you got to go all the way back to packet three and retry. And so you never get to sending a lower quality one in that way. But like Maybe on the subsequent file? Yeah. Perhaps. I'm trying to think. I... You know, the whole kind of black box of the media source yep. extension API. I didn't yeah. get into that. So actually, yeah, that's a good point. I think there would be something there about changing the audio quality. And so the smarter client side, that interacts with a little bit of the server side, or is that more of a standalone uh, approach? It's standalone. Cool. It just goes and grabs things. And it uses that manifest file. So all of your streams are defined in a manifest file. And it uses that to know what options it has available. And so... You would know if you don't have anything else that you should just keep trying what you have. In your talk, you showed uh, some usage of, I think it was a hls.js and... Dash.js. Dash.js, yes. And so is the bulk of uh, what those libraries are doing, is that reading that manifest file and then figuring out what to go and get from there? For sure. And also it just creates a whole media player for you. Okay. And I think it's filling in some of the gaps of where most browsers haven't implemented the client side part mm, of the MPEG dash yeah. spec. And so it's filling in that gap. Well, browsers are catching up or, you know, who knows, it may just become like the new thing. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, you were showing us the syntax and it's, you know, like a, the open source one at least has like that XML wrapper that describes the different streams there are. Mm -hmm. So I was, yeah, being able to see how that works is interesting. Mm -hmm. And you can see how that can be like, you know, polyfilled or whatever by these libraries. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's, the other uh, interesting thing which you didn't talk a ton about was that the kind of closed Apple format has, you know, 58% market share. And then the open source one has like 2% or 8% or whatever market share. Like what, is there an explanation for that? Oh, there, yeah, there was, there was a lot of like spicy Apple talk I did not get into this time. <laughs> but the really interesting thing to me was I went on Can I Use? And it's not there mm, right now, yeah. but it was there at one point. It said... Um, HLS is being replaced by MPEG dash and the HLS can I use? And I thought, who wrote that? But I think there's a sentiment that, you know, proprietary based protocols are not good for the future of the mm -hmm. web. And they're just holding us back because you come to the stalemate where you can't use MPEG dash mm -hmm. on iOS Safari because they've decided you can't. You can use it on Safari, but they're really holding all the cards. And if you can push their hand and say, no one's using this, then I think you're left in a better state moving forward. But yeah, there's a lot of interesting things about people wanting to move away from Apple that I decided to leave out of my talk. Mm -hmm. No, for sure. I think like we, we talk a lot in the podcast about, you know, these companies that push things forward too fast mm -hmm. and then waiting, waiting for standards to catch up can be a bit of a pain. So it's fun to see that again, even in this weird audio API. Yeah, for sure. And there's also Microsoft has their own. I did not talk about that at all. <laughs> but I found no information until the very end. I thought, well, I think that's a sign. Yeah. yeah. So the in your talk, you had the HRT version had a lot of smaller files, and then the Dash had the single file. Was that just for your example, or would you end up with multiple files in a larger HRT transfer, no. or larger Dash transfer? My understanding was that if you use a fragmented MP4 file, it's actually all in that one file, okay. but it's fragmented in there. Okay. It knows what the fragments are. So if you look in the network tab, I, I have an example. 
don't know how to get that over a podcast. But if, I, if you were to look at my example in the dash.js version, you would see that different fragments are coming back, even though they're all coming out of that single file. Mm -hmm. If you did that with HLS, you would get the same thing, except for the fact that HLS only allowed fragmented MP4 files as of like three years ago. Mm -hmm. I think it was 2016 they announced it, and they said it was better, Apple being they, mm -hmm. said it was better for caching and uh, allowed something else because it was mm -hmm. all in one file. Mm -hmm. But it created a really great benefit where you could have the same files and use both MPEG-DASH and HLS. Mm -hmm. So the only difference really was that in the transport stream, you have to have those separate files, mm -hmm. but you could still have that fragmented MP4 mm -hmm. and work with HLS. Cool. So these, like HLS and, and uh, Dash, are they dependent on the type of audio file that you're trying to, to send as well? Does that, like being an MPEG-4, mm -hmm. like can it work with other files like a WAV file or something else? Interesting. Well, so for HLS, I think it's very specific. You need to have either, I think it's AAC, MP3, EC3, or AC3, which I don't know what AC3 or EC3 are. <laughs> but, but at the same time, I used an M4A. So I think it's a little like wiggly, like what you can actually use. Yeah. If you can convert one of those to a format, and I know that that's possible with a lot of different audio files, the options are endless, but you may lose some quality in doing that. Whereas with MPEG-DASH, it's codec agnostic, so in theory you should be able to use whatever. Gotcha. But I don't know if there are limitations in actual implementation. <laughs> I'm sure there are, and that no one knows what they are. Yes, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> cool, yeah, that was a fun talk, and it's mm -hmm. neat seeing... It's always neat learning about stuff that we don't necessarily think about on a daily basis. Yeah, we'll get to use very often. Sure. Mm -hmm. yeah, well, thanks, thanks a lot. Thanks yeah, for thank having me. We are back again with another episode of TalkScript. I'm Neil Roberts. I'm here with Sam Menza and our special guest. Hi, I'm Florian. Hi. Uh, we just uh, got back from your talk on a lot of different things. Basically, you, as I understand it, you have a, a game engine and you moved it from a native app to a native web app. As you said, the idea was how to, to move this game engine. So it's a game editor that was written all in C++. So both the kind of business logic that is handling what a, what a game is and how to, to generate a real JavaScript game from the game that you see in the editor and uh, the whole interface that was displayed so it was a desktop application. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the, the point of my talk was to show how I remove all the interface and do it again using React so that it can run in a, in a web browser. So all the, all the stuff to make complex applications using React. And also how to, to translate the business logic that was written in C++ into something that can be run into a browser. So here using WebAssembly, you can get something that is running more or less the same in a web browser or on the JS. So really what you did, what you did a lot of was kind of leave your C++, like the engine work kind of in the background mm -hmm. and take a lot of the interface level components and do those again in React. Right. Yes, yes. It was quite a, not a strange decision, but it was a bit like doing a rewrite of a software without rewriting it. Yeah. Because the thing is that I had a lot of, of logic and things like a, I have an expression parser and all the code that is generating the JavaScript mm -hmm. or the game engine. All of this took uh, me a few years to do. So I'm, I was like, okay, I don't want to rewrite it from scratch. Let's see what I could do and still have something that is running in a web browser at the end. So it's, it's a little interesting because you have probably very little business logic in the React code, right? Like it's almost all user interface. 
it's a lot of user interface. So right now, I'm spending like 90% of my time improving the, the interface and all the, the React stuff. I would say 10% of the time is adding new stuff or changing stuff in this business logic part in WebAssembly. So to add, for example, a new concept in the game engine or to improve the code generation. But as it as it's a code base that is quite mature and stable, it's changing less. So it's well tested. It's mostly React work. Yeah. Cool. And do you expose like a, a lot of the C++ code to JavaScript? Do you have a lot of different points you expose? How big is that kind of surface area? Yeah, it's quite big. I mean, when I was looking at WebAssembly and before ASM.js, most of the examples were like about either how to expose uh, an entire game by rewriting the OpenGL calls to WebGL. Mm-hmm. Or it was how to write a function like the Fibonacci, Fibonacci function and, and it's done. Well, here what I have is that all the classes in C++ that I want to expose to JavaScript, I have a, a huge bindings file that is containing all this interface. So it's a bit of the code duplication, but it's only the interface. So only the class and the methods that you want to expose. Mm-hmm. It's a few... Yeah, maybe 100 classes. I don't, I don't really know. It's quite a lot, but it's okay because uh, it's still only one single code base in C++ that is being reused in JavaScript. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, so you mentioned uh, that you use um, something called Story... Storybook. Yeah, Storybook yeah. instead of like the traditional unit test. Can you talk yeah. a, bit, a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. I like seeing that I don't do unit tests. That's not entirely true. <laughs> I do a lot of them for, for this backend part in C++, especially for things that are a bit complex, like code generation. Mm. And I have a lot of unit tests for after the code is compiled to WebAssembly. So at this point, I have JavaScript code that is running, creating an object and checking that I can set the name, add a new object, uh, clear the name and all, all this stuff. So it's for me to be confident that my WebAssembly module is working. For React components, I've been trying a few approaches. I know that things are getting better with new libraries like a React testing library. Or I've been mostly using Enzyme and the built-in testing stuff for React. And I found that in my case, it was just faster to avoid unit testing my components because they rely, if they have logic, it's mostly in C++. And if they don't have their logic in C++, then the logic is more like boring state management of having a field that I'm storing somewhere. Mm-hmm. And in this case, I was like, okay, I will avoid making a unit test. That's, that's a bet. I don't do a unit test, but I'm creating a story in Storybook. So I can manually test my component outside of the application. So that in the future, I won't know if someone broke this component. But what I hope is that me or the person that is changing the component will take a look at the storybook and see that, oh, for example, I forgot this use case, but thanks God it was in the, the stories for this component. Mm-hmm. So I see that it's either crashing or not showing the proper mm-hmm. thing. So I like to say it otherwise, that I try to make the path between your code and something that you see on screen as short as possible. Mm-hmm. And storybook is really good for this. Got it, yeah. You said you still have to go through that manually then? You don't have anything that's automated? No, I've seen things like uh, automatic snapshots or Mm -hmm. even screenshots maybe for for Storybook. Mm -hmm. 
I've not been using it because no time for this. If it was a bigger team, I have a few contributors and want to thank them, by the way, on GitHub. Yeah, if we were a team of more developers, maybe it would be a good thing to invest. Uh, but for now, I'm doing this on my spare time. So the software is quite stable. When there is some regression or bugs, it's, it's more logic issues rather than okay. components rated. Yeah. So your, your storybook is kind of like smaller examples of the ways in which you use the different components on your site? Yes. For example, I've been adding a new a new window allowing you to add some effects, some shaders on the layers of your game. And what I've been doing is that to add a new story for this editor. I started without and at some point I was like, okay, it's, it's long to click on create a new game and then to navigate to the editor and to add a new effect and finally to see this window. And I was like, okay, I just have to make a, a story because what is good with components is that you exactly know what they need by just looking at their props. Mm -hmm. So if you can provide them with proper props, then it's fine. The thing that I had to do is that I have a file that is instantiating a test game. So I have more or less, it's a bit like, like fixtures, uh, basically. It's a test game that I can quickly create and pass to a component. Or at least I can pick some part of the game and pass it to a component mm -hmm. so that I don't have for each component to redo a game from scratch mm -hmm. using the, the API. One thing that I was wondering is if you think this approach is going to be used even more in the future of where you kind of have this application written in another language, but someone wants to have the interface written in you know, a, a JavaScript front end that's using browser technologies. I think so. I think that in my case, it was more like it was convenient to mm -hmm. be able to reuse the code base. If I had to start again, I'm not sure if I would go the WebAssembly route, or maybe I would. For example, I'm thinking of you now using WebAssembly in the game engine. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's quite fun because I'm using WebAssembly for the editor, but not for the, for the games. Mm -hmm. But now I'm starting to think about replacing some part of the game engine, like the collision ending, by something that is written in WebAssembly. In WebAssembly, maybe in Rust or C++, I have to check out mm -hmm. what are the options. I think that we'll see more and more of these approaches because we might want to write into a language that is not JavaScript. For example, to have something that is the business logic that can run on the server in, I don't know, any language, and then compile to WebAssembly so that in the browser we can still access to this business logic. Maybe it won't be that common because JavaScript is still a very efficient language and it's properly typed now using Flow or TypeScript. Mm -hmm. But still, might be might be something that we'll see more and more. Like I can even imagine where you have some parts of your your business logic in Rust and some part in C plus and like that that seems like interesting to me to have to be able to kind of have different languages for different things that they're good at that can all interface with front end through WebAssembly. Yes, that that's the exciting thing with WebAssembly. It seems to be a, a Java virtual machine that is actually cross platform mm -hmm. and uh, working well with JavaScript and the web technologies. So yeah, that that's a that's a use case, I guess. I think that for now most of what we see are softwares that are reusing large code base like physics engine, in my case a game engine or I know that some folks are doing a PDF rendering engine mm. on the web. Yeah. Uh, so in this case, you better not start it from scratch. In <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. For a bit of time, I've not been really convinced adding types in, uh, in JavaScript. I'm using Flow as the typing engine because I'm using Create React app and it was only supporting Flow at this time. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing a lot of React Native before, a few years ago at work. Uh, so I was more used to flow. But the result is the same. I think that it's a bit of a cost to write these types as you write code. 
even if it's becoming uh, really natural for you mm. after a bit of time. You're creating a new component, or let me write the types for the props. It's a bit like writing documentation, but it's better than documentation because it's statically checked. Mm. I think that the the part where I'm really glad to have these types is that when I'm changing a prop in some component that is reused everywhere, like a text field, but also something, for example, I have a selector that is a field user in a lot of parts in the in the app that's allowing you to select an image in the in the list of image of your game. And this thing when I'm I don't know, I've been doing some changes and now I can see automatically all the rest of the code base telling me, okay, this part is broken or mm-hmm. should be broken. And the last thing that I like is that it's still JavaScript. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can still make the change quickly, check that it's working and then fix the types after. So they're more helpful than something that is keeping you back. So yeah, yeah, that's helpful at the time you're refactoring your application. And even if you say that, yes, but I don't need types because I'm doing small modules and unit tests, mm-hmm. well, please continue to do small modules and unit tests. But even your small modules at some point will have to change because modules are made of other modules. And at some point you want to change things and types will help you. And has it been helpful for that, the binding between your like business logic and the front end? I would love, but uh, there is no types generated for this. I've seen something that was using Mscripton to generate the JS modules, and it was generating TypeScript definitions. Mm-hmm. That would be the best. It's not the case, so for now I'm doing without types for it, mm-hmm. and having my, my share of bugs because of this, but it's okay. I've been doing the compilation of this C++ code base to WebAssembly more or less on my own using Mscripton and a few scripts that I've been writing. If I was to start now, I would look at are there any tools of library that take your C++ code base and compile it to WebAssembly and generate the types. Yeah, that's really, mm-hmm. it's cool to think like that you could take that back in code and generate the types that can then be used in front end in TypeScript or whatever, and yeah. then have that like contract in place. Like that, that seems really like a best of all all worlds. Yeah, because you can both get some backend or business logic that is running fast with WebAssembly mm-hmm. and still have a front end that you can iterate on quickly because there is nothing as fast as just reloading an application uh, or mm-hmm. reloading a component. And still, having these types will uh, give you some uh, safety net. Uh, of course, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's fun to see all the different things all working together. It's fun because I've been doing native development a while ago and moved to, to web development, and now I'm starting to see things converging. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm really interested at seeing what the, what the evolution of WebAssembly is because that's a really interesting te- technology. Cool. Yeah, well, thanks for joining us on our podcast. Thank you. Yeah. It was a pleasure. Got a good thing going on. Bah, 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 bah.